For Romans chapter 8, let me read verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. If you were here last week, you know that we uh, read 26 to 30 last week in Romans chapter 8, and then we paused. We decided to slow down, and that was for a number of reasons. One, it was just time. Two, I felt like there was so much to say about 29 and 30 that I didn't want to rush it. And I think more than that, these concepts that we're going to find in 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8, which I would just sum up as the activity of God. What has God been doing since eternity past, and what is He doing now, and what will He do in the future related to how we are saved? How are we in Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What has God been doing? That's the lens we're looking at. And over the next number of weeks, probably four weeks plus, especially as we get through the end of chapter 8 and into Romans chapter 9, this will be a dominant theme you're going to hear and think about and want to pray through scary words like predestination. We're going to think about words like election. You're going to wonder about the calling of God. Is it effectual or not? And who's involved and how does this work? And the last thing that I wanted to do is introduce that topic poorly or to rush through it. So that being said, let's read verses 29 and 30. And we're going to be looking for five concepts in here underneath this big theme of God's grace or His activity. And I'll, I think the idea here, I'll give you an image when we've, when we've read it. There's going to be five concepts of God's activity. What gives us hope and, and security? What God is doing, not what we're doing. And this is what Paul says in verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So these words, I said to look for five concepts. For new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified are the action words, the verbs that Paul is placing on what God is doing, what God is up to. We made the point last week that we have to keep in mind the purpose for Paul insisting on what God has been doing since eternity past. Because for many of us, we know that this argument or this, this concept concerning predestination, for many of us, is firmly planted in a nerdy, sometimes combative conversation about doctrine and high things that no one can know. That's what it feels like maybe for us. I don't know what your experience is. When I say to you, let's look at foreknowledge and election and predestination, some of you could not wait for a morning like this. You're alive to these topics. You feel certain about them. Really, what you think is, ah, oh, yes, I can't wait. I hope he says things like I would want them to be said. You could not be more excited. Some of the rest of you, and I hope that there are people like this, you have not been impacted by an unproductive or otherwise what you felt was too combative discussion concerning these things. If I say these words, you say, I don't know what those words mean, and I'm just a Christian who loves Jesus. What are you talking about? You don't even know that there's ever been a fuss, let alone been in the fuss yourself. You've been fuss-free all this time concerning these concepts, and I'm grateful for you. We're so glad that you are here. Some of the rest of you, the fuss has been so much that you've rejected these ideas and you thought to yourself, here's the thing, all I know is I don't want to be like that jerk or something like that, right? 
Or perhaps you hear these words, and because they break your mind and your brain, your brain and your, your mind and your brain, your brain and in your heart, you don't know what to do with it, you maybe are even tempted to think, I just can't think about God in this way. And so you haven't thought through these things very deeply. And to you, I'd say, I'm grateful for you. And we certainly do not want to be so certain or give airs of confidence here that would, the only word I can think of is besmirch the name of God. I also would want to say that if you are looking this morning for, what does this church believe? Maybe you came with a friend and you think like, are they one of those churches? Are they reformed or, it's like a spooky word, like Calvinists? Is that what this place is? Was I enjoying myself and now today it's all over? Like it's just, are you starting to carve canceled into your phone concerning us? I want you to know that understanding of these things and the way we handle them is not a litmus test for belonging. We study or consider these things because the Scripture presents them and we hopefully present them in the amount with the kind of certainty and the sort of humility that the Bible presents them with. So you do not have to come to a certainty about these things. We're not looking for you to understand them in the same kind of fullness as everyone around you. If you are in Christ, we are so grateful that you're here. And what I want to do is present what I believe is Paul's purpose for writing this. Maybe you say to yourself, why does he got to bring this up? It was so hopeful. It's about the Spirit groaning in us and God working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And when you need comfort in your suffering, you think of those two things and you think, amen. Yes, the Spirit's groaning inside of me and he helps me in my weakness. When I'm unstable or I'm uncertain, that's what I need. Or you think when I'm unstable and I'm uncertain, what I need is the fact that God is in control. That's wonderful. He's in control. And perhaps you have not often thought, what I need when I'm uncertain and I'm unstable is a good lesson in predestination. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. Verse 31, which we're going to get to in the coming weeks, verse 31, Paul pauses and he just exalts in feeling solid, feeling secure, feeling sure, feeling like he can make it through the suffering. He basically just says at the end of Romans 8, whatever the world throws at me, I'm fine. He gets there. Now imagine that. Paul gets there from studying this. And my desire and my hope would be that we get some of the way there as well. That no matter your background, your, cur- your present setting, your fears, your concerns, your confusions, that as we think about these words and we try to label what is it that God has been doing for eternity past and is, what is he doing now in the present and what will he do in the future that when you think on these things, you start to well up with hope that I'm not inviting you this morning, Paul's not inviting you to a mere intellectual exercise. The goal of talking about these things is not to be intellectually stimulated only, but to be hope-saturated from the depth of your being. When you see and grasp the idea that God is working in an unassailable, unbreakable way, you should grow in hope. That is the point of these things. So how are we going to consider these five words? Well, the first thing I would say is I'd borrow from our forefathers for hundreds and 
perhaps even thousands of years, those who have been reading and interacted with this, have given this idea of a chain, that these concepts, this work of God is a way that we are tethered to Him. So I would put a title or a theme over this, these couple of verses, tethered by grace, which is this favor of God, His work on our behalf. We're tethered by grace. Maybe if it is easier for you to think about an anchor that's connected by a massive, strong chain. I saw a picture of what is purported to be the world's largest chain on a container ship, a mooring chain. It was really unbelievable. It dwarfed the man who was standing in the middle of the thing. I also once saw a machine as big as a room that created ropes for anchors and for securing cargo to massive ships. Think about the, the largest rope, the strongest rope that you've ever held or interacted with or touched. Just imagine that, right? So you can see it in your brain. It's maybe this big around. You think like, wow, that's amazing. Well, now imagine like 50 to 100 of those ropes coming down from a machine in a room this size and being woven together all as one consistent rope. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. And I believe that what Paul is trying to offer us in these words, this work by God, is to show us that our souls are tethered to Jesus, so secure that it's as though we're connected by either the world's largest chain or a rope that takes a whole room to construct. And then, if we can grasp that, we still haven't quite got it. That is the imagery that we're getting at here. And so what I want to do is I want to discuss these facts, these ideas, and why they lead to so much confidence, and then we'll define the words. So first thing to say is that I know that some of these things are not easy. And let me tell you by experience, I spent a number of years of my life, in fact, most of my teenage years, late teens and then early 20s, involved in ministry, I think doing very, hopefully, fruitful things for Jesus. And every time I thought about these concepts, I recoiled. I hated them. At times, some of my closest friends, I told them, stop talking, you're anathema to me right now. You know, the things you can only say to a friend, like, this is, this is the worst there's no way God's like that. I don't know what to make of this. Anything that I couldn't fully understand, I just wanted to reject it. And I had a very helpful mentor who said something to me. It seems like you're really bothered by what these words mean or how they function or what's going on. Like, you don't really want to think about it. And I said, no, I, I hate that. I hate this stuff. And he said, well, here's the thing. You need to read your Bible and where it uses words and concepts and where it invites you to think about something, you need to have a definition for what those things mean. You can't just ignore them. You can't white out. You can't be a Thomas Jefferson kind of person. You know the Jeffersonian Bible? He just, he just whited out what he didn't like. He just made his own version of the Bible. So maybe the invitation this morning would be to say something like this. You don't have to have a fully formed or perfect agreement on the definitions of these words as we as a church. We know we're not going to get there. But I would invite you that when you read your Bible and you see things like this, you do have to say to yourself, well, what does that mean? And I'm going to give you a couple places where I was invited in my Bible reading over the course of years to think, what? One other place is in Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul again. I'm going to go beyond Paul because you might think, yeah, Paul's the weirdo. Peter said that he writes hard things to understand, and he was right. This is just one place, though, I want to show you the consistency that when Paul wants to bless someone and help them to be stable, he says things like this, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sounds good so far. Do you like being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Great. But then look where he grounds it. This is the ground of these things. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the idea of being conformed to his image, same as Romans 8. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I pause there and I think to myself, wow, Paul's using very consistent words. These are letters written years and years apart. It seems as though his understanding of our security in Jesus is based on concepts like this, that before the foundation of the world, that God was working, that God was loving, that God was setting apart, God was determining to make us holy in his sight. That is big thinking. These are concepts that are beyond us in so many ways, and yet here they are in black and white in our Bibles. So you might say, look, I knew that that kind of stuff was in the Bible, but I just thought it was like the end of Romans 8 and then Romans 9, which is just a weirdo chapter, and I, I, I could sort of set it aside, and I'm trying to show you, well, he uses this language a lot. Ephesians 1 is just one place where he talks about these concepts often. Okay, you might say, but it's just Paul, right? It's just Paul. Let me acknowledge the Apostle Peter. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing to a church that is persecuted, unstable, feeling like they might not make it. I don't know if I'm going to get there or not. This is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Sanctification sounds amazing. Obedience sounds amazing. Being sprinkled with his blood for forgiveness of our sins sounds amazing. But where are those things grounded? Well, they're grounded in their identity as elect exiles. And this all has happened according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter can't talk about the certainty of the blessings we have in Jesus without pointing backwards to the activity of God. So now we have Paul, multiple places, seems like his understanding of why you can be secure in Jesus is not what you've done. Now you must respond, okay? That, I know that all of our minds are moving right away. Does this just mean that God doesn't, we're just robots? No, no, no. From our perspective in real time, we must respond. But that's not the focus. You don't get to security and hope in life by focusing on what you can do. What Paul and Peter both seem to be saying is you're going to find security and hope there by remembering and seeing what God is doing. And those are very, let's not get them confused, those are very different realms of doing. God is perfect. He is unassailable. He is complete in his wisdom. What he sets his mind to, he accomplishes. He's not like us. So, Paul and Peter... You know the thing that really got me? I can remember distinct moments trying to avoid all these topics and not wanting to think about them. And there I am reading in the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of John. And it turns out that it was not Paul's confidence in what God had done before the foundation of the world, not Peter's, not Luke, who we're going to see from the book of Acts in a little bit later, but it was the words of Jesus himself. Many of you are probably most familiar with the words of Jesus 
that we're not going to quote directly or see on the screen, but you can recall that Jesus says that no one can go to the Father except by me. So Jesus sets up a path. Here's the chain to the Father through me, and then he goes on to say, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. So again, Jesus is offering, hey, you can be in me and you can get to the Father. This is security, but I just want you to know the only hope you have for that is if the Father has been doing work in drawing. You know that Jesus is also the one who said that all those who are in his hand can never be snatched out. Just Kung Fu Chuck Norris grip. Just, he's just got you. And then let's read John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40. John chapter 6, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus confidently declaring the success of his mission. I want to come back in a minute. The success of his mission. He says, all that the Father gives me. So he has in mind that the Father, in sending him, has an inheritance to give him that will be accomplished by his redemption. So he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now that is eternal security. You've been given to Christ by the Father. He says, I will not fail. I will raise you up on the last day. You won't stumble. You won't fall. You are his. In verse 40, he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day. There will be those, Jesus is certain of this, there will be those who will look on him and believe. And everyone who does that will be eternally secure in him, not stumbling, bumbling, performing, but solidly in him forever. But he emphasizes and references that it's the will of the Father that makes this a certainty. It is the will of the Father who gives to Jesus this inheritance, this idea of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And I think to myself, on this side of Jesus and what he's done on the cross and the billions of Christians on the earth, on this side of it, it seems obvious that his mission was a success. But I want to ask you something. What made Jesus so sure? Today, we've marked Palm Sunday. It's a moment of triumph. He comes in humbly and people are saying Hosanna, but we also know that that support would only deteriorate day by day until by the end of the week there were less than a handful of people who would even acknowledge that they knew Jesus. And I'm reading through, so back to my story, I'm reading through and I'm thinking about Jesus and what he knew was going to come, rejection. He knew that everyone would scatter, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, he said. And then I'm wrestling with, well, how is he so certain that people will come? And I had a very scary thought. I thought, unless God had made this certain, unless he knew, unless there was a kind of overpowering, overwhelming love that was set on us from before the foundation of the world, is it possible that Jesus could have come and died on the cross and no one cared? Would it be possible that Jesus could have come and died on the cross for redemption of sinners and then no sinners were redeemed? Would it be possible that he rose from the dead and everyone thought it was a parlor trick? And the answer seems to be, of course not. 
So where does Jesus ground the certainty that his mission was going to be so successful? He grounds it in the fact that the Father had been working from eternity past, that the Father had made a pact with the Son and the Spirit to bring about the redemption of those whom God had said, on you I have set my electing love. And this is an amazing concept that Jesus himself In moments when he is walking through suffering and being rejected and about to get to the point of death, Jesus himself says, what stabilizes me? It's remembering the will of my Father. And so what Paul is doing, in our temporariness, in our finiteness, in our struggle with sin, he just got through Romans chapter 7, he says, I do the things I hate, In all of these things, he says, here's the deal. You can acknowledge those. We know that we're weak. We know the Spirit helps us, but it's not going to give you confidence. What you need to do is look at things from God's perspective and remember who he is. And this is the way that he does that. This is the way that he's going to line up. This is what God's been doing. Now, as we go through these definitions, I know that there are a million questions. There's an intellectual pursuit here, and Paul's going to have a whole chapter written about it in Romans 9. So we're not going to ignore the questions that are going to come, but we're going to deal with the text as it's given. And that is, without fail, it seems a certainty, this is what God has done. As we define these words, I want you to note that they're all past tense. You ever been at a, you ever been at a job and you wanted to give certainty to your boss because you said, hey, could you make sure and get that email gets sent out and then reorganize the stuff and whatever, and then you'd, you'd say very confidently, done and done. What do you mean when you say done and done? Do you mean that you're the flash and it's done? Or are you inviting a trust from the person to say, I want you to know, trust my character, trust my skills, trust my competence, trust my commitment to this, it is done. It is as good as done. Done and done. What Paul's trying to say is in these words, these past tense words, these things done and done. And it turns out God is even better than the flash. He's outside of time itself. So these things are not maybe, but done and done and done and done and done. These five things. First, God foreknew. So we're invited to consider the idea of foreknowledge. There's a couple ways that foreknowledge has usually been thought of if we wanted to define it. I would say that God's foreknowledge is his omniscience tied to his authoring of all things. Omniscience tied to his authoring of all things. His providence, which is in verse 28, the idea that he is organizing and working all things together for good, gives him a foreknowledge of all things. Now, this is very different than, way we may be, than the way we may be tempted to think of foreknowledge. Some people would say, or it has been said, well, God is outside of time, he escapes our timeline, and somehow he went into the future and he saw what we were going to be like. So all the stuff about predestining and, uh, and calling us and stuff, really what happened is God got outside of time And he went into the future and he saw what was going to happen and then he responded. I would call this Biff Tannen foreknowledge. You know Biff in Back to the Future. Biff has a superpower. He gets outside of time. He stumbles into the DeLorean. He gets to the future. He finds a sports almanac that gives him all of the information of what's going to happen in the future. And then he becomes a very rich, godlike man in the community. Not because he did anything, but he simply saw outside of time and then responded. 
He didn't box anyone. He didn't win a horse race. He didn't get a football team. He just had a superpower of getting outside of time and getting knowledge. I would say that many people would view that as not God's authoring, that kind of thing, as more that he has an advanced reader's copy. Some of you Harry Potter nerds, just imagine, I mean that in the most dear sense, right? Just imagine you were a deep supporter of Harry Potter. For some of you, that's easy to do. You were just a deep supporter. It would be like if between books five and six, you had a package show up at your door, you got an advanced reader's copy, so now you know all that's going to happen, and you're telling your friends, hey, I just want you to know, I kind of, I know what's going to happen. Well, how? Well, I got ahead of the game. I just, I just know. It's not even published yet. I know. But when you're me, me and JK, we're good. So you might say to yourself, and then I responded, let's say that finally when you're with your friend and uh, you're at the coffee shop and they're reading that section that you've already read ahead, you've seen ahead in the game, you know it's going to be super sad, some tragedy, and the person just starts to sniffle. <laughs> no way. Not... I don't even know the names. Not, uh, not Weasley, not Weasel, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, they're starting to just cry. And then here's what you do in a godlike way. You pull the tissue straight from your pocket. Your person says, what? Did you have a prearranged tissue knowing that I was going to tear up? And you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm just ahead of the game. I just... You see, some people view that all God is doing is reacting to things that he has no control over in the future, and then he appears godlike because at the right moment he pulls out the tissue. And I would say to you that this is not the teaching of Scripture. In fact, it is nearly borderline, if not completely and utterly heresy. Scripture presents God as the author of all of history. He doesn't have an advanced reader's copy. He had the copy in himself, in his will, before any ink was put to paper. You see, the author is in a different place with the story. The author, up above the story, speaks in some way. Their will is brought into fruition into the world, and that's the way that God's foreknowledge is described. So that's one aspect, I think, that's happening here. God doesn't just have a superpower that gets out of time. He, in fact, is the author of all history. And I would say he is the author directly of all salvation. Let's say that specifically. Again, because some of you are so smart, smart as a whip, you think, hold on here, buddy, hold on. There are some things that are atrocious in the world. Sin is everywhere, suffering is everywhere. What do you mean, author? And we're going to be careful here. The way that Paul's describing this, the author of salvation, God is actively involved to the point of an author level, not advanced reader. Okay. One more thing about foreknowledge, though. When it says that he foreknew, those whom he foreknew, doesn't he know all things? Is there any person who he doesn't foreknow in this way? In some way, yes. So what is being said here? And I think what's being emphasized is that when the Bible uses the word knowledge, it means not just mere Western reason kind of head knowledge, but an intimate relationship with. So I'll go straight to the most obvious example. In the Old Testament, knowing someone was saying something. If you know what I'm saying, then you know what I'm saying. It's carried forward to our day, this idea of carnal knowledge, but when a man knew his wife, he knew her. And there was an intimacy involved, a relationship, a connection, a commitment of love, a covenant. And what Paul is pointing out here is that there are those from eternity past, and by those, I mean if you're in Christ, you, 
that God knew you in a loving relationship kind of way. In a, I created this person, I put my image on them, I'm not going to lose them kind of way. Knowledge of intimacy. That is why First Ephesians chapter 1, which we read earlier, says that in love he predestined us. Here it says in foreknowledge he predestined us. Ephesians, Paul says in love he predestined us. So which is it? Is it love or is it foreknowledge? And the answer is yes. Because foreknowledge is a kind of affection, an intimate love toward a person for their good. And that is the beginning, it is the ground, the source of all of our confidence in Christ, that God, before you were ever formed, Psalm 103, he knit you together in in your mother's womb, that his thoughts toward you are more than you could imagine, they're more numerous than the sand on the sea, the ground and the beginning source of all good that you would ever receive in Jesus is that God knew you and set his love on you. That's That's what the Bible tells us. Second, as a result of this love, because of his love, because God is for us in this kind of way, it says that he predestined us. Now, we can't get too fancy with the definition for this word. I think it most simply could mean a predetermined destination, a choice ahead of time, a setting apart of a place and a goal. And the place and the goal that we have been predestined to is to be found in Christ and be made like Him. So those whom God loves, in His foreknowledge, He sets apart and He says, this person will not be lost, they will be found in Christ eternally. Because Jesus will be the first fruits of a massive family of people gathered together in Him. What this means is, We have a destination, and we have a decision to make in real time. You must receive Jesus, confess him, confess your sins, and actually place faith in him. But ultimately, there was God's activity prior to yours. God's choosing of us is always emphasized in salvation before ours. Don't put them in competition. It's going to break your brain. They work together in unity somehow, even if we can't figure it out. But there is a question of which comes before, which is paramount, which is prevenient, which is going ahead, which is a, a causal choosing. Always God's. So when I was struggling with these concepts, and I didn't want the Bible to say what it said. Can I say it that honestly? You ever been in that spot? You just don't want the Bible to say what it says? One of my main complaints, one of my main issues, is that it seemed like, if this was the case, that I could not evangelize. It just seemed like, well, what in the world, and how does this function? And again, I was trying to equate or put in competition the activity of humans and the activity of God. The Bible never seems to have a problem to make them work in tandem. Tandem, we have the problem. Spurgeon once said that somehow in God's economy there are, there are parallel lines that meet. Does that make sense? In math, you know, that doesn't happen, but somehow in God's world, parallel lines meet. That's, and I'm, I'm dealing with this, and I'm a missionary, and I'm thinking, like, how do I function in this? And so I'm reading the book of Acts, delightfully in Acts. It's Luke, it's not Peter, it's, or it's not Paul, and I'm thinking, like, I'm just about mission, I'm just about Jesus, I just want to evangelize, and that's the way this is going to work. And then what do you know? Luke keeps grounding people's responses in the activity of God. So I want to look at Acts, Acts chapter 13. And remember the moment I read this verse. 
Acts chapter 13, let me give you the context. Paul and Barnabas are on this mission. They're preaching the gospel everywhere to anyone who will listen. Mixed crowds of Jews and Gentiles, maybe a crowd like this, this size, right? And they proclaim Jesus and what he's done. And then there's fruit that's happening. By that I mean people are saying, I believe you. I want this Jesus. He's for me. I want to confess my sins. This is them becoming Christians. And then we come to verse 48 where Luke comments on why this is happening in a description of what happened. He says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That sounds great. It says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And boy, that threw me. I wanted to grammar check the Bible immediately. Like, the Bible's dyslexic. These are the wrong way around. I wanted the Bible to say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Do you see the instinct there? But the Scripture again and again, now listen, they had to believe. No one gets fast-tracked against their will to heaven. They must believe. But what is emphasized is the previous work of God. Because salvation, ultimately so that we don't boast in it, must rest on God's work and His activity, not ours. So I wanted to grammar check or dyslexia check the Bible, but it turns out what it really says, Luke says, here's the deal. When God calls people, when the gospel is proclaimed, the thing that is definitive is the fact that He has an affection, a predestinating love on people. He's calling them powerfully, and then because He makes them alive, they believe. And this was... This is mind-shattering. What I saw in this moment was a kind of freedom to evangelize. Again, my favorite guy at the time was Charles Spurgeon. I loved him because he was effective as a communicator, extremely evangelistic. He just called people to Jesus over and over and over again. And then one day I read that he was a Calvinist. And I thought, no. No way. Can't be. This man prays for the lost. This man wants people to be saved. He can't be one of those people. Canceled, right? He was just gone. And then I heard him describe how it was that he saw these things in tandem. And he described the confidence that he had that when he obeyed his father, that good things would happen. And he was told by his father to preach the gospel to all who would listen, so he did. He was told to pray for the conversion of souls. And he felt like what his father told him to pray for, that he could not be disappointed if he did so, and so he would pray for the conversion of the lost. More than that, he was told to proclaim the gospel, and that when the gospel was proclaimed, people would believe. And so he said, I understand your hesitation, but I'll tell you right now, if I did not believe that God had worked in eternity past, and that ultimately people believing was based on what God's activity in their soul was, then I would quit ministry immediately. Imagine, he said, look, I know humans enough because I'm one. If there's a crowd of people and what I'm telling them is deny yourself and take up a cross and admit that you're wrong and kill your pride and believe in Christ, if it's up to people to convince their own hearts to heaven, he said, no one would ever get there and I would quit teaching right now. However, if you believe that as part and parcel to the story of this world, as anything else is, as part and parcel as a bird or a tree or water itself, if you believe that down into the fabric of this world, 
was the loving, calling foreknowledge of God on people so that when the gospel is proclaimed, you don't know who, you don't know when, you don't know what it's going to look like, but there in the hearts of people, regeneration is going to be taking place and bubbling up, someone's going to say, I believe. I believe. Tell me more about this Christ. Tell me to walk with him. I believe. I, I believe I'm forgiven and I'm free and I have guilt and shame being taken from me. Spurgeon said, because I know that, I will preach today and this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow because it rests on God and not on his ability to convince. Again, these are mind-shattering things. So God has foreknown and God has predestined in love and then he calls, and that's what Spurgeon's talking about, he calls This idea that when Jesus is revealed to a person, that they will respond. This has been referenced as the effectual call of God. I've heard people tell stories of hearing the message of the gospel and it just never clicked. They just didn't care for years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden it did. And isn't that a mystery? When you tell the story of how you've come to know Jesus and why you're holding on for so long, Why are you still here? What do you say? Do you say, well, here's the thing. I've always been a little more spiritual than my friends. Why are you a Christian? Holding on through all that and your sins and everything else and your doubts? Why are you still here? Well, you know, I've always been a little smarter than other people. So, I've always been helpful. I see the good work God's trying to do in the world and I've always been helpful. I figure he appreciates me, so I'm just sticking around. Or, Do you say, here's the thing, I see him. I don't know how, I don't know why, but my eyes were opened and I see him. Or maybe you say, here's the thing, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, but I believe. When I hear that God has created the world and that he set the thing in motion, there's a standard and there's sin and that someone would die for me, that he would come and offer his life in my place, I believe these things and I find hope and life in them. And in some level, I can't describe why? And when you say that, and when the boasting leaves yourself and gets placed totally on God, God, then you're thinking about what Paul's thinking about in Romans 8. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he calls, he grasps. Now you might say, this kind of calling seems like God's a bully or something. Because can't you reject? Yes, people do reject, and we, we can. The question is not, How do people reject? Everyone knows that. The question is, how does anyone not reject? How does anyone actually come? I think Jesus' words, he said, well, because the Father gives them, and they come. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he said. And it's not a bully kind of way. It's God opening your eyes to what you've been designed for. You ever heard something beautiful described as breathtaking? You ever get angry about that? How dare that thing take my breath? I did not consent to this. Next time I see something beautiful, I want to decide ahead of time that it's beautiful and I'm going to offer it my will freely. Now you see, salvation is more like the Grand Canyon. You bring someone blindfolded up to the edge. What do you have to do for them to see the beauty of the Grand Canyon? I'll just take off the blindfold. Just let them open their eyes. It's as easy as that. It's just like waking up. Because some things are so beautiful, so worthy, that all you have to do is see. 
And you see, that's what the call looks like. God just opens some eyes. He just digs some ears. He just reveals Jesus in a way that you say, I love him. I see him. This makes sense of all of life for me. That's the effectual call. Justification is simple. We've spent almost all of Romans describing it. It's to be declared right with God. It is both, it's, a legal just, it's a legal declaration that you are guilt-free. Your sin exchanged for the righteousness of Jesus. And it turns out that all whom God foreknew and all that he predestined and all that he calls in that way where your eyes are opened and you see, your breath gets taken from you. All of those who have that experience, Jesus said, whosoever comes to me, he justifies. He forgives. What's amazing about this is there's been no qualifiers so far. You know that the Bible could have said, those whom he foreknew to be extra spiritual, those whom he foreknew to be malleable and kind of gullible, those whom he foreknew to be innately good or better than others. There's been zero qualifiers. What's the qualifier to get to the point of justification? The fact that God knew you and set his love on you and revealed Jesus to you. It's only those kind of people who are justified. It just turns out that those who are justified fall into the category of whoever. Whoever gets to this point is justified. And then finally, we must define the word glorified. I think the idea here we introduced to last week is to be restored ultimately to the purpose for which we were designed to live eternally in love, affection, and light with the triune God. And though we still have a lot of work to do, this is happening in real time, Paul writes it as the main confidence is that this has already happened. It's a done deal. Done and done, says God. Glorified. The reason this is ultimately good news is because it means that your ongoing faith, your assurance, and your hope rests not in your own character or your own lasting good work. You see, I can't help but believe that if you were in Christ by your own doing, then you might constantly, even subtly, fear that you might be out of Christ sometime by your own doing. And Paul says, here's the thing. Here's how to get to hope. When you think of your salvation, remember and see God at work from eternity past, now in the present, and now on to the future. To be freed from the performance mentality of, I'm the one that's stirring up this faith, or I'm the one that's working, or I just got to keep this going. To be freed from it is a kind of freedom. It's a new life, legitimately a new life. Around that same time, and this is a period of years, I'm reading these things. I'm confused by them. I don't know what to do. I'm coming to little journal notes in my Bible, and I'm like, why does John chapter 5 say this? What in the world, you know? And I had a conversation over lunch with um, one of the women who was in our mission team. She's a good friend. And we're having lunch together, and she's really broken. She's doubting. She's worried about her sin. 
She longs for Jesus. She wants to be closer to Jesus. She's feeling bad about it, though. I can tell she thinks that God's disappointed. She's fearful. I might be lost. I don't know what's going on. And she's telling me the story about her brother, who she's like, I don't know. He's just been so doubting lately. I mean, he's just, I don't think he's a Christian anymore. And she's going back and forth. And what was amazing is in that moment, I had a desire to care for her. I wanted her to feel secure, to be known, to be loved. And I find myself start saying these things from the Bible that previous I would have said, that's not what that means. And I'm saying to her, listen, your confession and desire for Jesus is evidence that God has desired you from eternity past. You are a secure, you're more secure than the world itself. Did you know that? God's loved you from before time. This wasn't about you. Focus on what God has done. He's going to keep you. No, your brother, if he was in Christ, he's going to stay there. No one can snatch him. And I'm saying these things, and I'm offering her this hope. And you ever have an out-of-body experience when you're teaching? You think to yourself, wow, I'm learning right now. (laughs) You should teach kindergarten to little kids or something. I had an out-of-body experience. I'm encouraging this woman, and I'm thinking to myself, I believe this. Oh, my goodness, I believe this. And it's like I'm feeling scales come off my eyes a little bit, and I'm feeling more light. And I leave the little place that we ate. It was an old chicken brooder converted to a dining hall. And I'm walking across this gravel road, across this field to where I was living. I'm not a very charismatic person, at least at the time. I didn't grow up that way. But out loud, like I couldn't contain it, I just start saying, I'm free. I'm free. God, you've done, you've done it all. I'm free. You've loved me eternally and like I don't have to keep performing. You see, I was in missions and I'd go to bed at night and I was just feeling so guilty. I'm thinking, I'm with you, God. You and I, you must be so impressed. We're trying to convince people and just trying to, we're just trying to see if this thing's going to work. I'm feeling all guilty. I'm thinking it was probably the guy on the bus, wasn't it? You wanted to save him, but we couldn't because I didn't say the thing. Everything's so present and so like we're just scrambling. And in that moment, I felt such a certainty, a certainty that drove down into the ground. I was tethered by grace in a way that I couldn't imagine. I just said, I'm free. I'm free. I think at one point I even sort of like spun around like, does anyone else see this? Do you not know what's happening? In Christ, we're free and we've been loved eternally. And it's that kind of conviction that Paul expects that we're going to get to, I think, when we think about things like predestination, not to argue intellectually over it. There's room for questions. You're saying, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's what God's doing, but how does that line up with what we do? We're going to talk about that, but don't miss the point. Do you know that you're in Christ because from eternity past, God set his loving affection on you and leveraged all that he is and has worked to bring you home. He worked in the promises after the fall and he worked in the covenants and he worked in the prophets. He worked in the law and he worked in the coming of his own son and he worked in the week of his death, and he worked in his resurrection and his ascension, and he worked in the sending of his spirit, and even down through the ages, he worked through the church to call out to you to say, you're mine, and you'll be secure forever. Now, that's hope. That's solid. And I hope that you see it. Let's pray. God, would you Help us to set aside all the very real questions. 
You are not like us. Your ways are higher. Your thoughts are higher. We don't know sometimes how these things work, but I pray we wouldn't get hung up or caught up. We wouldn't argue. We wouldn't only be distracted. Help us to have the properly ordered desire to understand and that our deeper joy would be in the fact that you are for us. Thank you for your work in our salvation. God, we, may, we pray that you would keep us confident, hopeful, secure in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.